0: Hi, I am Jules Hamilton, and this is Keeping It Good, the Good Summit Podcast. This is an incredible conversation with a man that I consider an incredible man. It was a real joy to talk with Martin McAleese, a dentist, a businessman, an accountant, uh, a politician in the Irish Doyle as a senator and husband of the 8th President of Ireland, Mary McAleese. And whenever you read some of the accounts of Mary as President of Ireland in Orisonic, you really come to understand what a team Mary and Martin were, uh, and still continue to be in issues of peace and reconciliation and justice on this island. This conversation comes from someone who has seen the very centre of things, whose thoughts and reflections are really worth listening to. It's One of those people, particularly in his work with loyalist paramilitaries in the North. There's a lot of stories that we can't put on the podcast. Maybe one day, but, but not yet. But you'll get a flavour of the role that Martin has had on this island and beyond. It was an absolute delight to talk to this gentleman who is an absolute inspiration. So please enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Martin McAleese, you are so welcome to the Good Summer podcast. It's just delightful to be with you again and to have a conversation. Um, can, can you tell us before we get going, where are you sitting today in
1: the world? First of all, uh, Jules, thanks a million for the opportunity to have this discussion with you. What am I today at the world? I suppose um, I look upon myself really as an an ageing, doting grandfather, you know, who just wants to spend an awful lot more time with two little grandsons. And my ambition there is to hopefully have the same relationship with them as my father had with our children, Because he came to live with us and stayed with us for 20 years, uh, almost. He came when my mother died, um, relatively early. And he spent uh, his last years with us in the Aris. And he effectively became the third parent to our children. The real parent, I may say so, Jules, because no matter what we would say or tell them what to do, they always went behind our back to him he was the final arbiter and it was what he said that went so looking back on that uh, you know I thought that was a magnificent relationship and that really is what I would like to kind of create with those two little grandchildren and I just mentioned this in passing that only last weekend uh, now bear in mind that there are eight years and six years, two two very young boys, uh-huh. I took them to Old Trafford to see Manchester United playing. Oh, they are wow. mad United fans. So right. I took them as a surprise, and it was unbelievable just to watch them from a distance as we went into Old Trafford, uh, yes. up to the stand, uh, match started, Ronaldo over there with a number seven on his back, yeah. and the look in their faces of awe and those big wide saucer eyes, really fantastic I want more of those memories oh that's
0: incredible it. I'm only sorry that they didn't get to see a better team <laughs> Martin
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, well, it's not the not beauty of football isn't it
0: Just, but, but those, those experiences are invaluable absolutely. like they will look back and remember their first time in Old Trafford with such warmth that's brilliant
1: but going back uh, to the beginning, if you like, uh, James, uh, going way, way back.
0: Tell us about you as a boy then.
1: Well, growing up in Belfast, um, well, my mother and father were country people who came to Belfast uh, just shortly after they got married in the late uh, 1940s. And um, he was one of the very few Catholics to get a job in Shorts, the aircraft factory.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And having got the job sorted, the next big challenge was to buy a house. Uh, and the only criterion that was applied was that that house should be close enough to his work that he could either walk there or cycle there. My father never owned a car. In all of his eighty-four years, he never owned a car. That's hard to believe. And you try to tell that to your children, uh, and they say, "What planet are you from?" <laughs> but looking back, looking back, um, uh, by only applying that criterion, Jules. Uh, it demonstrated to me their uh, ignorance, if you like, of the sectarian geography of Belfast because they ended up buying a house right in the heartland of loyalist and Protestant East Belfast. So I grew up. I grew up as a member of a minority Catholic family. I couldn't tell you to this day where the next Catholic family lived. We were disconnected from our neighbours. We did not, not know our neighbours. We were loners. In fact, in our community and. That was the first impact uh, was a fairly battered and uh, undermined uh, self-confidence. And I had to struggle with that for a long time, you know, and in some cases still would have difficulties around self-confidence. So that was one um, kind of legacy or impact. Another one was um, the firm belief in the value of education, just absolutely believing that education was the past to get out of that environment into a different and a better environment. And I got a very good education, uh, thanks to uh, my mother and the Christian brothers. A third um, legacy is a never-ending love of the GAA. I mean, in East Belfast, as you can imagine, in that environment, there was little or no opportunity to express my Irishness and my nationalism. And the only way I was able to express that was, by playing for a Gaelic football club in West Belfast. Uh, And in some ways, that involvement where I could freely um, express Irishness and nationalism without any fear, uh, that was a handrail that kept me going. And it's quite interesting and ironic even, when you look at East Belfast at the moment, there's a vibrant, uh, flourishing GAA club in East Belfast, and Linda Irvine, one of the promoters and a member of that club. So that that gives an idea of the change in time. The other and the last sort of um, impact or legacy that I'd like to mention, Jules, is the survival instinct, and what I mean by that is that I remember as a young fellow, early teen teenage years and later coming from the centre of Belf- belfast say coming home walking from the pictures or whatever it was you were coming home from and as you walked along the road and you saw a group of young fellas at the next corner you intuited exactly what you had to do you knew whether you could walk past them safely whether you had to cross the road and go up the other side or turn back completely now that survival instinct or i think it's referred to Nowadays, more as situational awareness. I mean, I still have that. So I walk down Grafton Street on a Saturday afternoon in the middle of July. I'm still looking around for danger. Now, my children have no concept of that. None. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing. But the downside is that sometimes they could be lulled into a false sense of security because they wouldn't recognize that kind of danger because they haven't experienced it and they haven't developed the kind of skills or tools that will enable them to kind of just sense it and take uh, uh, and take retaliatory or, or avoiding action. So those are the the kind of legacies um, of living there. One of the other things that came out of that though was that, and I'm very grateful for this. I have never had any sense of bitterness or any sense that I would like to seek revenge I don't know why that is it's just not there and I'm just entirely grateful for that and wow. um, wow. the other thing maybe that's worth mentioning is that out of that again came an absolute determination that if I could do anything possible anything to help the next generation or younger people to not grow up in that environment I would do what I could mm. uh, to help do that now um As we grow older, Jules, I think we tend to drift back into our childhood memories and relive some of those memories. I think that we get a lot of solace and a lot of comfort from that. So you relive, you know, uh, the joy of your first football match or many things you do for the first time. And we all have those memories. But my memories, uh, and I have them too, but mine are diminished and maybe contaminated by that constant background temperature of intimidation fear and sectarianism and I remember um, back in 1971 we lost our home on the night of internment uh, I wasn't there that night I was at Queen's and I was it was during the summer holidays I was working in Blackpool but Martin, on that for, night
0: for those who are for those who are listening here younger can you tell us what what internment uh, was what what was going on in Belfast in those days?
1: Well, I mean the troubles were at, at their height really. It was a massive amount of sectarian killings and bombings and shootings and law and order had got out of control completely. And the um, the response to that by the powers to be was to just lift people and intern them in, put them into prison without trial and hundreds and hundreds of people were lifted on the night of internment. Um, that's not that, and you don't want ever to, to be back in that situation because no. Many, many innocent people were lifted as well and suffered badly and probably never recovered from that. But And so um, chaos broke out in Belfast and all over Northern Ireland when the British Army began that process of lifting people and putting them in prison. And on that particular night anyway, a mob came and they put my mother and father out and they got away with only uh, two suitcases. That was all they got and they were rehoused eventually after spending some time with relatives in a place, and you probably know this place well, Rathcool, in North yeah. Belfast. Two and a half years later, we lost our home there as well. That's
0: um, the fire stuff. Absolutely.
1: So it was really, those were really very, very difficult years. And I remember around that time, at, at the age of 20, 21, um, just making up my mind that, look, I'm going to start my life as if today is the first day at the age of 20. Wow. Uh, and I rarely, rarely look back because it was painful to look back. It was difficult. Of course, there were those memories I referred to earlier, but they were all kind of mixed up in this kind of ambient thing of fear and intimidation and sectarianism. So I literally started my life all over again at around the age of 20. Now, if you fast forward 25, 26, 27 years, Mary is elected president of Ireland. And she adopts as the theme of her presidency, building bridges. Now, it's easy to build bridges with those who are the same as you in terms of background, religion, politics, ambitions for the future is an entirely different thing to outreach to those who just differ, who are diametrically opposed to you in every one of those things. But if those two words, if that theme of building bridges, if that meant more than, was to mean more than just two words, we were mandated in a sense to reach out and engage with those whom we would be expected to have absolutely nothing to do with. And I refer here really to loyalist communities, loyalist leaders, paramilitary organizations, but we just felt we just have to do that. And I remember my first meeting with a number of loyalist leaders and you can imagine Jules sitting around at the table with 10 or 12 of these guys there were no women, of course. There was, there was no gender equality in that particular context. <laughs> you can imagine the suspicion, the distrust, the nervousness. But we broke ice eventually, began to talk. And suddenly, like a thunderbolt from somewhere, it struck me that the greatest uh, asset that I could bring to that table was the fact that I'd lived for the first part of my life among them and their people. I knew their streets, their clubs, their pubs, their schools, their shops. I knew I could understand their accents. I could share in their sense of humour. And all of those things, all of those things conspired to produce a, a very strong street credibility. It was absolutely instrumental, crucial in building a strong relationship between the, uh, between the presidency, between Mary, between Ars Muktaran and loyalist communities. And And I often wonder, you know, it happened so easily really that I often wondered, you know, what if that outreach had been made earlier? I mean, I think the reason that we hold back from engaging with others who are so diametrically opposed to us is the fear of offending or being offended. And yet when you take the first move and you reach out, uh, I was gobsmacked at the response, and it reminded me. Well,
0: I practiced- can, can, can I ask how do you do that? Because that what you have just said is is literally it, it's incredible for me to hear. So, you know, I, I listened to you. Um, I'm I'm an East Belfast man, but I was a nice middle class East Belfast man because my father was a Protestant clergyman. So we probably grew up different times, but no more than a mile or mile and a half from each other. And yet, the experiences of East Belfast are diametrically opposed, and and so you have you have the experience where your family is put out of of their home, unimaginable to me, uh, and and then and then again unimaginable to me. Twenty five years later, you're sitting in the the seat of the president of Ireland in Ards on Derryn, and and you just said it very naturally. There, you know, you know, the first time I met these loyalist leaders but how on earth do you even begin to to do that did they approach you did did you you and mary kind of sit down and said you know what we got it we got to put a hand out here in some way how does that even begin to happen where you find yourself sitting with people whose whose tribe if you like had, had thrown your family out of their house what happened very much by accident,
1: really, Jules, and that's a very good question. How do you make the first, how do you take the first step? What, in fact, what is the first step? What happened um, was I, got, I was sitting in the R's one day at my desk uh, and I got a phone call from a solicitor friend of mine who was driving in his car in Belfast with a loyalist paramilitary leader. Now, I'll not mention that man's name, but this good friend of mine, the solicitor, phoned me and he said, look, so-and-so sitting beside me in the car Talk to him, and he handed the phone over to this guy. That's how it happened. And we had this conversation that eventually ended uh, by, we have to meet, we have to talk, but just not right now. Mm -hmm. Just right right now. That was probably around the the latter part of 2002. But early 2003, I think, I may be a year out of this, but early the next year, in the middle of a feud that was going on within the UDA, um, I arranged, we arranged this meeting and I met this guy on a one-to-one basis and we decided that, in fact, how it, how it happened, uh, sitting talking um, and I said to him, you know, I told him what I would like for my children. It's just something that, you can't prepare yourself and we can't prepare a script for a meeting like that so we met anyway and I said to him look um, i tell you what I want for my children Uh, I want them to be able to say to me at the end of my life look daddy thanks for doing something or helping to change things so we grew up in a different environment Mm. from the one that Mm-hmm. But I said, to "This guy, look. If my children can say that to me on my deathbed, that means everything. That vindicates my life, greater than any material worldly goods that I have accumulated." What do you want for your children? I said to him. I said exactly the same, and so we agreed that uh, we agreed that we couldn't do this for our own children on our own, but possibly we could do it for both sets of children together. And so we agreed to start a journey. Not knowing where it would end up, but accepting that probably it would be a better place than the place from which we started. This podcast is proudly
0: supported by the amazing folks at Thought Collective, a team of designers and developers who create brands and digital products to captivate the crowd and communicate effectively. They make The Good Summit look great.
1: Check them out at www.thoughtcollective.com.
0: Absolutely. So you you have been um, really instrumental um, in the background, and I'm really struck by you talked about your upbringing and how your upbringing one of the byproducts of that uh, was a natural tendency to. I almost be happier in the shadows, you know, kind of seeing, noticing what's around you, feeling safer in that place, not being comfortable up, up front, but, but you know, it has positive connotations as well as negative ones. But I'm really struck that whenever you got involved in the peace process, um, talking to Protestant loyalist paramilitaries, that, that would all have to be done in in the shadows. Almost. you know the husband, the husband of the president of Ireland, can't show up in some sort of motorcade in 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 the middle uh, of Tiger's Bay or somewhere like that. And
1: yeah, in fact, I mean, obviously, the theme was building bridges. Now, so we were building bridges to those communities, to those people, those leaders. Now, May could not do that for the very reasons that you've just outlined, but she can. not couldn't go anywhere incognito. She couldn't go under the radar. She would go with that cavalcade, but I could go under the radar and I could go quietly. Uh, no one need know about it, only the people that I'm meeting. And that is in fact what happened. And you couldn't actually delegate that either to staff, if you like, or to others, because you had to bring the real presence of the presidency to the table. And you know, and I think I was able to do that but because the, my wife was the president. so. It was kind of there in her place. And that was very, like, what that did was it really um, showed respect. It yeah. showed equality. Uh, I also would have gone, one of the building blocks of of, of, those, of that relationship building was to go to the home turf, uh, the place of the other, those people that we were engaging with, uh, making yourself vulnerable, going without security, uh, uh, being very careful not to knee-jerk, or be confrontational, to let things wash over you. Just sit, observe, let people vent, uh, leave the ego behind you when, you when you left, onto the leave it onto the duvet when you left the bed that morning. And simply listen and then gently come in and start broadening out the conversation. And I remember it's quite interesting. Um, I mean, I, I would have said to them on many occasions, look, there are certain things we can't talk about. They're just too raw. Uh, certain constitutional issues, as you, as you can imagine, we can't talk about those things because they are too raw, and we only fall out if we start talking about them right now. Let's wait until we build a relationship, and then we can come back and more freely discuss. It was quite interesting once that was on the table and mentioned; they couldn't wait to talk about those things. It's quite interesting <laughs> once you acknowledged it, once you acknowledged it that there was, and that is something that I experienced. But from my own knowledge. Of people in other situations, that never happened. That those that in similar kind of mediation or reconciliation situations, people would have left the hard stuff to the very end. Yeah, I found the hard stuff came on the table immediately once you accepted that those things you couldn't talk about. Found that was very interesting. You know, it's it's it, it, the, this is
0: a seminar on relational leadership, Martin. That's what this conversation has turned into. I'm loving this. Um, you're talking about real, uh, real forward movement and momentum um, taking you to be vulnerable. But by the way,
1: did, did you ever feel unsafe? No, uh, no. I mean, i no, not. I mean, and, and, the, and I've been often asked that question, uh, Jules. I was absolutely convinced that this was the right thing to do. And so was me. And when you're absolutely certain that you've got to do this, it's the right thing. You don't think about whether you're safe or unsafe. You just want to go and do it and make it happen. Do you know? So it's quite interesting. I mean, uh, whether I could do the same thing today uh, in the present circumstances is another question, but that's not a discussion for, for today yeah. because, you know, uh, but I would have I mean you do have to make yourself vulnerable. I mean and when you make yourself vulnerable and you're kind of putting yourself in the hands of, of people who come with a terrible reputation for violence, um like you know it's a big statement, you know, it's a big statement of trust in the in 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 them. And I think that was accepted.
0: That's that's incredible. You 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 uh, you were honest, you were vulnerable, you put a human relationship before uh, political ag- agreement or manipulation uh, and you were o- open enough to kind of have things on the table that, that were just labelled, we don't need to talk about those, but you actually had the experience that those are the things that people really... But it, it, it's almost kind of simple. We, we we don't even have to go there. And then that sense of, well, no, well actually we do, and now we can because nobody's shying away from it. Uh, you right. know, You know, people being free... To be authentic and say and, straight. Going- yeah. and yeah. Be straight, yeah, and be
1: straight without any kind of kind of uh, you know uh, meandering around the issues and maybe not ever you know coming away like it's, it's interesting that discussing all the things we discussed over eight nine ten years or whatever it was, I mean there was never one argument, there was never one thought, never wants to be followed, never wants to be part as anything other than friends. Wow. There was never, like, it was just quite amazing. And for me, you see, for me, that demonstrates something. Because if you think of the risks that were taken, people would have said to us that we were taking risks engaging with these people because of their reputation, what they've done. And uh, my retort to that would be well, you've got to think of it from their point of view. The risks that they took, I think, were greater. Why? Because yeah. we could easily have been um, regarded as uh, being traitors fraternizing with the enemy as members of the community and if you think about that kind of um, that kind of accusation of betrayal or fraternized with enemy in a paramilitary environment the consequences of that could be particularly brutal absolutely and yet there was a real willingness and openness to engage so so that for me demonstrated another thing which um, i've i've reflected on a lot and that is that you know I would believe that there's goodness in every human heart. People are basically good jewels. In the hardest of hearts, that may be very, very deeply buried. Hmm. Yeah. And that is the case. And I think our challenge is to spend as much time and have as much patience to reveal that goodness and then to connect with it. I actually find that that the more the engagement continued and got deeper and more genuine and more honest, the more and more was the goodness revealed. And that was what we were able to connect with and that had phenomenal potential for moving things forward.
0: So real change and real forward movement in the peace process and the loyalist paramilitaries really did come from time and energy and authentic straightness being put into relationships.
1: Well, if you look, look at this point of view... Politicians don't have the luxury of this, because, you know, they are elected. So the first day they are elected, they go into government. It could be for a term of five years, four or five years. Halfway during that term, it's only two years in, two and a half years in, they are focusing on re-election. Yeah. No, that does not give them the opportunity to spend the time that is necessary. I mean, to give you an example, we began this in two thousand and two, say. It took until 2010 before we were able to persuade a group of these men to come to an Ireland football final in Crow Park. You're talking about a huge investment in time. And the other thing that was quite interesting, we said to them from the very beginning at every meeting, we will not be publishing uh, publishing any photographs or any media reports on this. If anything gets into the media, it's coming from you. It will never be from us. It took about five years before they realized that we were actually dead straight about that. Yeah. Wow. It took five years of non-disclosure um, of what was happening uh, before they were, yeah, they're actually genuine. They're not going to be running to media seeking kudos for what they've done. There's a genuine attempt here at reconciliation. And then again, I said, I said, it took 10 years. So the situation is this, that um, you build these relationships not for a purpose, not for a time, but for a lifetime for them to be enduring and credible. So I can say now that some of my best friends are members of those organizations. Uh, and that's the way it has to be because that reflects the credibility and the depth of the relationships. That's what you've got to do to really be able to work with and reconcile and work together, make things happen for the common good, you know? Wow.
0: Wow, Martin, that's uh, we're we're actually incredibly running out of time. I could listen to you all day with this stuff I really could. Um and perhaps um one last kind of uh, question or or series of questions, That's an incredible journey from a family put out of a house in East Belfast to literally engaging uh, the tribe that put the family out and bringing them in many ways to the table. Uh, and, and to a process where peace is, it, it, where peace becomes possible. Um, you, you talked earlier on about how difficult that is by decommissioning uh, sectarianism. but I, I suppose if I can ask to finish with, we've had this peace process. We've had a Good Friday agreement. We're now decades on from it. What do you think has worked really well? and where do we still have to go in terms of this island? and uh, what, what we have been learning about building lasting peace?
1: Um, first of all, I think we're only in the beginning chapters, Jules. I think we have to be patient. This is a long-term process. If you think it, depending who you talk to, you could, someone someone could say to you, the troubles were 900 years in the making, or what are we from the Good Friday Agreement, maybe 25 years or whatever. So we're only in the beginning chapters. And there's a lot of work still to be done. There's a few things that I think that we really need to uh, we really need to focus on. We have absolutely have to focus on, and that is we must ensure that the peace and opportunity dividend arising from the Good Friday Agreement percolates down to and is available to every single community in Northern Ireland. In other words, we want to avoid ending up would be essentially a middle-class peace process. And there's a real danger in that. Communities that have suffered most from paramilitarism and sectarianism must be involved, must see the benefit. They mustn't be excluded and become spectators in the stand on the sideline as the process of peace is developed and played out on the pitch. That's crucial. If we we fail to make it fully inclusive, uh, we run the risk of leaving people more and more and more behind with the possibility of that break of violence again. Loyalist communities are very fractured and uh, disconnected. uh, And you can see that when we hear of loyalist communities being referred to as, and tagged as paramilitary communities, UDA, Loyalist community, UDF, UVF, Loyalist community, Red Hand Commando, Loyalist community. We've got to get away from that. We've got to get cohesion within loyalism, so there's there's a strong community speaking with one voice. And paramilitaries must understand that um, The only role they have, and in fact, they should be off the landscape now anyway, but for those who still exist on the landscape, the only role they have is supporting and encouraging community development. They have no role whatsoever in controlling and owning communities. And the third thing that needs to be done is to build a very robust relationship between between loyalism and republicanism. I mean, part of the problem with the Troubles Way Back was that when they broke out in the 70s, Nobody knew the person on the other side to talk to. In fact, there was no relationship there to actually put a break on things. There was no mobile phones, I would suspect. We need to build that relationship. Now, a lot of work has been done on that, and that relationship is growing steadily. We need that relationship. And finally, we need to find, our politicians need to find a way of expressing uh, real politics, representing the community as a whole, rather than the constituents uh, who voted them in. And maybe to finish off, I think we will see progress when we we feel that we have moved from a past characterized by two communities and two traditions to a future characterized by one community, but still two traditions, but at peace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We still have this issue of two communities we've got to get away from that uh, and get you know have our politicians uh, and that's the common good i mean the common good is one community in the context of it's not two communities or three or four it's one community Uh, and when we get to that point and we realize that the politicians that we elect once they are elected they leave the party affiliations essentially behind them and they work collaboratively for the one community for the common good
0: Martin, have you seen that happen? Because that's it sounds wonderful, but it's so hard for the reasons that you said. Have you seen examples of that? And uh, what politicians, you know, past or present, uh, have have you seen that actually, that desire to be, um, I'm in politics for everybody here.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you don't see much evidence of that. (laughs) You don't see, certainly in Northern Ireland. You know, I think that's one of the. You see, the Good Friday in the Good Friday Agreement, it was kind of accepted that going into the future from nineteen ninety eight that one side would persuade the other that the best future would be in, say, a a United Ireland, and the other side would persuade the opposite that the best place would be in maintenance of link with the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. That just hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. That just hasn't happened, you know, so that uh, when we go to the ballot box uh, and at the time of the of the referendum, whenever it will come, that, you know, we ha- we're fully informed and there are no surprises and that we've had all the argument. When you think of the referendum that's coming up very soon, uh, well, not, I'm, I'm not sure when, but it could be five years, ten, whatever, but are we going to sleepwalk into a Brexit-like experience so that we have no idea what the real issues are? What are the politicians doing about that? Yeah. What are the politicians doing that? And I mean, I don't see much evidence of uh, of persuasion. I don't see much evidence of. You see, it's boys down, I suppose to recognizing in the other a value and a worth, to respect the difference and diversity, to regard difference and diversity as a real asset that can be placed in the service of the community as one in the common good. We don't see that, and that's very disappointing. Uh, that. So far, after the Good Friday Agreement, we still have two very different communities uh, seemingly at loggerheads with one another. Will that change? God, I just hope it does. We can only pray and hope that it does, because if we don't change that approach to community and community development, community regeneration, where are we?
0: Well, Martin, you have done more than most to bring about the reality of, of which you speak there. So uh, thank you for continuing to do that because I know you, you continue to do that and, I, uh, and I'm and i so grateful for your participation and, and your support and encouragement of us in the Good Summit. Uh, we deeply appreciate it and I've deeply appreciated our chat this afternoon. Thank you so much, sir. Hope to see awesome. you soon. Perfect.
1: Thank you, uh, Jones.
0: That was Keeping It Good with Martin McAleese as you can hear a fine and intelligent and thoughtful human being. Go and listen to it again whenever you're out on a walk. There are many, many gems in that conversation. This has been Keeping It Good. Huge thanks to our production team, as always, Uh, to Andy and to Steph, who put this together and tell you about it. Keeping It Good is going to be coming back with a couple of shorter episodes in the next few weeks. Uh, Some ramblings from me, so I know that you're going to be just on the edge of your seat waiting for the next instalments and what we're going to talk about. But it's going to be me just having some thoughts uh, over the next couple of weeks. But for now, I'm Jules Hamilton, and I'm inviting you to go into the world and to keep it good. See you next time.